Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly cloudy skies. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll examine the charges against the officers related to the Rashard Brooks shooting death. Normally, these investigations are going to take a long time. Uh, Not only are they going to talk to witnesses and gather evidence from the scene, they're going to want to talk to the officers and get their side of the story. Uh, But in a case like this, especially in a time like this, uh, the district attorney is relying almost exclusively on the videos and the testimony of the people who were there and who saw what happened. That conversation in just a moment. Meanwhile, the funeral for Rayshard Brooks will be held at Atlanta's historic Ebenezer Baptist Church next week. Now, filmmaker and Atlanta-based Tyler Perry is reportedly paying for Brooks' service. And due to social distancing purposes, in-person attendance is by invitation only, but the service will be streamed online. And today, a joint statement from state representatives Philip Singleton, he's out of Sharpsburg, Josh Bonner out of Fayetteville, and State Senator Matt Brass out of Noonan. They're all Republican. Well, they sent out a statement in solidarity for the Atlanta Police Department and to encourage APD officers to join those law enforcement agencies in Coweta County. Quote, we value you and the good you bring to the community and we honor your sacrifices. If you're feeling led to leave the service, we ask that you first consider joining us here in Coweta County. We have open positions and we will be honored to have you. Close quote. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard kept his midweek projection that an announcement regarding the shooting death of Rayshard Brooks would be coming. Uh, We have decided to issue warrants in this case today. Late Wednesday afternoon, inside the Fulton County Superior Courthouse, Paul Howard presented a lengthy and detailed account of how and why his office came up with the charges against former APD officer Garrett Roth. And that also includes details regarding the taser Brooks took away from the officers. We have also concluded that Roth was aware that the taser in Brooks's possession, that it was fired twice. And once it's fired twice, uh, it presented no danger to him or to any other persons. There's a lot more to discuss. Joining me now is defense attorney and WABE's legal analyst, Paige Pate. As always, Paige, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Rose. Let's begin with those charges against Garrett Roth. D.A. Howard initially said murder or felony murder. You and I talked about this not too long ago. Is the felony murder charge, what do you make of that? Well, I guess 
Paul Howard's thinking that that will be a little bit easier to prove than a straight murder charge, because in this case, all he's going to have to show is that Officer Rolfe intended to commit an aggravated assault. He was going to fire at uh, Mr. Brooks, and as a result of that aggravated assault, Mr. Brooks died. And so felony murder is basically just a death that occurs during the commission of another felony. I think the DA could have simply charged him with murder and did not have to charge him with aggravated assault and felony murder. But at the end of the day, the punishment is the same. Felony murder is the same as regular murder. It's potentially life in prison, or as the DA said, potentially the death penalty, although I clearly do not mm-hmm. think this is a death penalty case. Page, again, these charges coming before an indictment, before the GBI's investigation is complete, an unusual move from the prosecutor's office, especially in a case like this. But let's listen to what Paul Howard said regarding that. Uh, we have had an opportunity to conduct interviews with seven other witnesses other than the three witnesses from Tennessee. So we have had an opportunity to review eight videotapes, uh, two Atlanta body cam tapes, two Atlanta police department dash cam tapes. Uh, We have also had an opportunity to review a Wendy's surveillance tape. We have also viewed three citizen cell phone videos. Page, lots of visual evidence here for the prosecution. How key was that to justify bringing charges before an indictment and before the GBI concludes its investigation? Well, Rose, you're absolutely correct that this is very unusual, especially in an officer-involved shooting. Normally, these investigations are going to take a long time. Uh, Not only are they going to talk to witnesses and gather evidence from the scene, they're going to want to talk to the officers and get their side of the story. Uh, But in a case like this, especially in a time like this, uh, the district attorney is relying almost exclusively on the videos and the testimony of the people who were there and who saw what happened. And and I think that can be sufficient to justify the charges that were brought. I mean, the video itself that we have literally shows what happened in those critical moments when Officer Rolfe decided to shoot Mr. Brooks. And it really is that decision which is ultimately going to determine whether he's guilty of a crime or not. Well, and the GBI put out a statement yesterday saying they've made significant progress in the case. They have not completed their work. They went on to say they were not aware of the press conference. They were not consulted on the charges filed by the district attorney. Should they have been consulted, you think? Well, and and that's a good point. I mean, let's be clear. The GBI does not have to be consulted. Uh, The decision uh, whether to bring charges and what charges to bring, that's exclusively left up to the district attorney of the particular circuit. So Mr. Howard had every right to decide how he wanted to charge these officers and to do it without the consent or, or even notifying the GBI legally. But practically, it's very unusual to do it this way. Um, Normally, you're going to let the GBI complete their investigation. Uh, The only urgency here is not that these officers are going to take off and flee the jurisdiction. It's not that these officers are going to go out and um, shoot anybody else. I mean, there's no evidence that they had a a lot of prior convictions. I know there's some prior complaints, but Mm -hmm. they were removed from the force immediately. So the only reason to rush the decision, and maybe there are two reasons, One is the politics. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, Paul Howard is in a 
very contested re-election campaign right now. And two, the climate. I mean, what's happening not just in Atlanta, but across the country where people are tired of officer-involved shootings either not being properly prosecuted or simply taking too long to investigate. And I think people are no longer tolerant, no longer patient to let that process unfold like it used to. D.A. Howard also referenced the actions of Garrett Roth after the shooting takes place. Let's take a listen. In our discussions with witnesses, what we discovered is that Officer Roth actually kicked Mr. Brooks while he laid on the ground. Paige, why is this significant? Well, it shows intent. Uh, You know, I missed that watching the video. I understand the officer's lawyer said that's not really what happened. Um, You know, we saw the still at the press conference yesterday, the image that was taken from the video. Uh, I'll be interested to see how it actually looks in real time, you know, watching the video again carefully. But if he's kicking the guy after he shot him, then certainly that is evidence of uh, of a of an improper intent, you know, not that I was trying to protect myself from Mr. Brooks using the taser on me, but that I really wanted to get it. And then again, the comment that the officer made after the fact that Paul Howard mentioned as well, I got him, uh, suggests that he was trying to kill him at the time. The voice you hear is defense attorney and WABE legal analyst Paige Pate, and we're talking about the charges in the Rayshard Brooks shooting death with former AP officer Garrett Roth and Officer Devin Bronson. Paige, let's go back to the GBI for a moment, because what if their investigation reveals something that may be totally opposite of Paul Howard's? And if that happens, could the defense ask the courts then to make a decision? Well, the case is not over yet. In fact, issuing the arrest warrants is really just the first step. The case still has to go to the grand jury if Paul Howard wants to bring a felony murder charge uh, against Officer Rolf. So, A grand jury is going to hear the case. Presumably that grand jury will hear from the GBI agent uh, who is investigating the case. Uh, The grand jurors can ask questions of the agent and they can make their own determination. I mean, just because Paul Howard wanted to get an arrest warrant and did for felony murder does not necessarily mean that a grand jury is going to agree with that and indict him for felony murder. And so if the grand jury says this is not a murder case, then it's not a murder case. And so we we still don't know exactly what charges this officer is going to face at trial because there has not been the grand jury proceeding yet. So just to be clear, then it is likely that Paul Howard will wait for the GBI's investigation before presenting it to a grand jury? Uh, Presumably, yes. Um, Also, because there, there are not a lot of grand juries meeting right now in Fulton County, given the coronavirus restrictions and things that we've been operating under for several months. Uh, I don't know why he would he would go ahead with the grand jury proceeding before the GBI finishes his investigation. He's got the charges out there. Warrants were issued. There's going to be either the officer's going to be held in jail or, or have a bond. So everything that would normally happen after a grand jury indictment is kind of happening now. He's moved that up a bit. So I think he'll probably wait until the GBI has completed its investigation before he takes it to a grand jury. Devin Bronson, who's also on the scene, looking at four charges, including a count of aggravated assault and three counts of violation of oath. Howard said Bronson is expected to cooperate, but there was no confirmation he would actually testify 
in a trial. What do you make of this? Because there's some conflicting <laughs> reports out there. <laughs> I, I think so. And, and I think the comment from um, the officer's lawyer, Don Samuel, is that he has not agreed to cooperate with the state. And he's simply going to tell the truth about what happened. I don't know in that case that the aggravated assault charge is justified. Uh, I think you and I discussed it uh, well before the press conference, and I did not expect that officer to be charged. Mm -hmm. I can understand now with some of the facts that we heard about from Paul Howard, how they could charge him with a violation of his oath if he did violate APD policies. But aggravated assault seems like a stretch. So perhaps the DA wants to charge him with aggravated assault, to, motiv to motivate him to become a state's witness and say, look, we'll dismiss this serious charge if you work with us and cooperate. I don't know, but I do think that's a stretch. It it's much different to charge Officer Bronson than it is Officer Rolfe, who actually shot Mr. Brooks. You defended officers before. How difficult is it to get a fellow officer unless it's something that is clearly really egregious or heinous and, and what have you, how difficult is it to get a fellow officer to actually testify against another? Well, it's extraordinarily unusual, especially in excessive force cases. I mean, we've seen it in some uh, corruption cases or fraud cases, especially at the federal level where, you know, an officer may be facing serious federal charges. And in order to you know, cut a deal or save himself some time, he'll agree to testify against another officer. I don't think that's going to happen in this case, mm -hmm. uh, because I, I think not only are we seeing these two officers, um, at least through their lawyers, take the position that what they did was okay. Uh, we see officers around the city, uh, apparently, you know, if not publicly speaking out on their behalf, uh, doing so by their actions. Mm -hmm. uh, we've heard reports from some zones that officers are either not showing up, um, they're not responding to calls as they used to. So I, I don't think we're going to see one officer pointing at the other in a case like this, even though Paul Howard clearly wants that to happen. Finally, Paige, if you're the defense for Garrett Roth, what's the plan now? Well, it's the plan is the same plan as it was before these charges were brought. And basically, you're going to have to argue that Officer Roth had a reasonable fear that Mr. Brooks was going to use the taser that he had uh, in a manner that could cause harm to either the officer or some other individual. And I think the defense is now focusing on the potential that firing the taser at Officer Rolf could have incapacitated Rolf to the point where Brooks could have gotten his weapon, his gun, and then used it either against that officer or some other officer or some other person. You know, a, a year or two ago, that would have been a great defense because I think juries were always predisposed to believe the officer over the other individual. But that is not the climate today. I think people are a lot more skeptical of these after the fact justifications. And when we have video of exactly what happened, a jury is going to be able to determine uh, for themselves, was this officer really acting out of a reasonable fear? And I've said all along, I don't think the shooting was reasonable. I do think criminal charges are appropriate. Defense attorney and WABE legal analyst, Paige Pate. As always, Paige, I appreciate you taking time earlier. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Rose, for covering this.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A pandemic, protests, calls for police reform, and all this is taking place in a big election year. Now, the pandemic forced Georgia's General Assembly to shut down, but state lawmakers returned this week. And one of the measures currently pending with the Senate is House Bill 426, a hate crimes act. It's already passed the House. This is the first time in a long time a hate crime bill has bipartisan support. Now, Georgia is currently one of four states without a state hate crime statute. Now, earlier this week, longtime public servant, former state senator, former Georgia governor, and the last Democrat to hold that office, Roy Barnes, an attorney as well, penned an open letter urging support and the passage of House Bill 426. And he joins me now. Governor Barnes, good to see you via Zoom. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me to discuss this important uh, bill and this important time. You know, Governor, before we get into HB 426, I do want to get your thoughts just to reflect on the current tone of our nation. You have protests throughout the nation as it relates to not only police reform, police-involved killings of unarmed black Americans. Obviously, we have one here in Atlanta. What do you make of all this, Governor? Well, I think it's a very uh, difficult time. Um, and George... Floyd seemed to be a tipping point. Mm-hmm. And the dramatic images that occurred from <clears throat> a police officer having his neck, his knee on the neck of a, a subdued uh, uh, offender or alleged offender uh, shocked the nation as it shocked me. Uh, there is a more than ever need for unity and for leaders to stand up and to speak for unity and also to speak for some changes that need to occur. Uh, We are one people. We are different complexions. We are different beliefs. We are different religions, but we are one people. And we seem now to be just at each other's throats. And I think it's very bad for the nation and uh, it should cause a closer re-examination of what a lot of folks have not wanted to talk about in the past. And that is uh, race that exists and race issues that exist and the underlying feelings that people have. And A lot of people don't think they're prejudiced and don't think that they have a racist bone in their body, but that's not true. I mean, there are things that need to be discussed. There are things that need to be open. I'm a big believer in that the way that you solve problems is not hiding behind them and uh, not talking about them, but to have an open discussion. 
Are you saying there needs to be, if we're going to talk about reconciliation, there needs to be an acknowledgement of how we got here and the past horrific or heinous acts, measures, what have you, policies that have gotten us even to not only 2020, but 1968, 1948, 1938. Yes, I do. I think that uh, we have to look back and say, and there has to be an acknowledgement that that was wrong. The things that occurred in those years, though people may have said, well, it was just the times, that's not a good enough excuse. Mm -hmm. You have to say these things were wrong, uh, even back to the time that uh, uh, of slavery. I mean, I remember when we were in the fight uh, to change Georgia's flag and take the battle flag of Georgia off of being th really two thirds of Georgia's flag. Mm -hmm. uh, what I got was, well, this is history, it's not hate. But yes, it was. Uh, that's one of the things that we have to examine. Again, it was hate. Uh, and uh, people were wrong. All of us, you know, I talked to a reporter several years ago, and I said, you know, the I'm a typical Southern kid. I'm 72 years old. Uh, I went through the time when there were segregated schools, and I regret to say that uh, the the young African-Americans that I played baseball with in my daddy's field uh, pasture, I never stopped to consider, well, why didn't I see them in school? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was a thing that was not thought about. And that's wrong, too. We, we have to re-examine and say, why did we feel that way? And it's the responsibility of those of us who are white, in my view, uh, to have that discussion. And you can change. Uh, as I said, uh, I was raised at a time when uh, there were segregated schools and uh, no one, I didn't think anything about it. Uh, I told, tell some folks that, uh, you know, the way everybody talked, I thought the South had won the Civil War uh, mm -hmm. until I was in high school. And, you know, the glorification of a rebellion, for example, and the glorification of what was called the lost cause, mm -hmm. all of those things have added to the racial feelings that we have today. Uh, I changed over a number of years. Uh, and I think everyone uh, can change. They re-examine and acknowledge, listen, I was wrong. And it's not that hard to say. Uh, and it's not that hard to re-examine. Um, what has bothered me over the years is uh, Christianity teaches that. Uh, the teachings of Christ teach equality. And uh, we seem to not have heard those uh, sermons that were preached uh, to all of us as uh, young Southern kids. And uh, this is a different time, and we have to acknowledge there were some wrongs that have been done over a long period of time, and we have to say, we're going to do better, mm -hmm. and then actually do it. 
Well, and speaking of reexamining, as we talk about HB 426, there's a new development, Governor, because it appeared that the bill was pretty much in place for the Senate. And then Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan now has introduced his version of the bill with some glaring amendments. Um, it does include a hate crime as a standalone charge instead of an add-on to an additional crime. What do you make of that? And, and why do you think, I know you can't speak for him, but why introduce this now when the lawmakers have such a short period of time to get things done? Because there is a short time. I personally have recommended and advocated uh, that the, the Senate pass House Bill 426 and send it on to the governor. There's nothing wrong with having a standalone crime, mm-hmm. uh, but with all due respect to the Lieutenant Governor, I read it yesterday. I think there's some glaring failings in that bill uh, and the, that proposal. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, for example, uh, the hate crime, standalone crime is you have to have a death or you have to have a serious bodily injury, mm-hmm. um, but you don't have to have a serious damage to property. And <clears throat> that puts property above uh, the rights of individuals. And for example, uh, someone motivated by hatred could take and bloody the nose and beat up a young African-American or any African-American, uh, and he would not be guilty of a hate crime because it's not death and it's not a serious bodily injury, which is generally defined uh, in the law as losing a member of the use of a member of your body. Mm-hmm. For example, if you lose your arm or you lose that. And I think that is much too restrictive. And there's several other things that I would, uh, that I would, uh, you know, criticize, but uh, that's, I think that the Senate would be better served by passing House Bill 426, not having to go to another vote in the House. The House vote was 96 votes in favor, and it takes 91 to pass a bill. So mm-hmm. I think it is fraught with too many challenges at this late date. Well, and Lieutenant Governor Duncan's version also adds culture as a protected class, defined as the customary beliefs, social norms, and material traits of a racial, ethnic, religious, or social group. And you know the problem years ago in 2004 when the state Supreme Court ruled that Georgia's hate crime was, and and this is what they said, quote, unconstitutionally vague. Could we run into that same problem? You do run into that same problem. And that was the bill that we had passed. It got amended in the General Assembly. um, And uh, they held it was uh, unconstitutionally vague. And not only that, but what that will do is uh, by using culture or even civil rights. I mean, civil rights of whom? Is it the civil rights of those who are, for example, uh, Mm -hmm. neo-Nazis that would be protected? And they will become defenses because what lawyers will do is, oh, you can't convict him of a hate crime just because he beat up a, a, a protected status under the bill, he was just, he was exercising his right mm-hmm. under the hate crimes bill to protect his culture. And I think that unduly complicates it. And, um, 
And with all due respect to the Lieutenant Governor and to those who wrote the bill, uh, I think that it was uh, poorly considered. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes, and we're talking about House Bill 426, a hate crime measure. It's been around for a while now. It's already passed out the House. The question is, can the Senate pass this measure so it can head to the governor's desk? Now, House Speaker David Ralston is in favor of the bill that's come out of the House. Still, some Republicans are challenging it. When the lawmakers were few weeks ago was thought that, hey, when we come back, we finally have bipartisan support on this. What do you make of this? Because this was something that, especially because of the George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery, because of those two tragic killings, this is what people want. I know that the George Floyd is a police involved, but especially with Ahmaud Arbery. Yes. And one of the things that I am proud of David Ralston. I think it was a, it is a, a courageous stand by him, and he has advocated, as I have, that the Senate pass the bill uh, in its form and uh, send it on to the general, to the governor uh, for approval. But I think that things have changed. Um, you know. I've, I've seen things change rapidly. Uh, and this is one of the things that has changed rapidly. Georgia, is, as you stated in the uh, opening, is one of only four states mm-hmm. that does not have a hate crimes bill. And that is not a distinction that we should be proud of. Uh, anyone who is singled out because of race or sexual orientation or anything like that, or color, or religion, or belief, that is not the American way. Mm. And we should have a standalone uh, bill without complication, as House Bill 426 is, uh, and it should be passed. And I was proud that uh, a bipartisan group, starting with uh, President Carter, but including Governor Deal and former Lieutenant Governor Cagle and myself and Mm -hmm. Sam Olins, Democrats and Republicans alike, uh, have all spoken up in writing and said, listen, it's time to pass this. It's time to be done with it. It's the right thing to do. Uh, And it it is long overdue. And Governor, as we wrap up, I also want to get your thoughts on the citizens' arrests or the stand your ground laws here in Georgia. Is it time to repeal these Georgia statutes? It, it, it is. <laughs> uh, the uh, citizens' arrest, uh, listen, I've been practicing law almost 50 years, uh, and I have seen very few citizens' arrests that, at all. And the ones that I have seen generally are infected with some other motive. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a trained police force, probably need better training uh, for de-escalation. But there's not much, um, there's not much need for a citizen's arrest. Uh, the stand your ground, we, the law was very clear before. I never understood why this bill needed uh, to be passed. 
the law was very clear was that if you felt you were in danger and you had no way to escape that danger, then you could use deadly force if you were threatened with deadly force. That was the common law that has been the law uh, for hundreds of years. And why you needed a new statute that says, well, you get to stand your ground regardless, I think only encourages confrontations that can lead to violence mm-hmm. rather than de-escalation. The letter that I talked about coming into the segment that you penned this week, you ended the letter quoting Dr. King, quote, the arc of the Moore universe is long, but it bends towards justice. You go on to say, it is time we help bend that arc further toward its destination. How optimistic are you? HB 426 will be passed. I'm an optimist. (laughs) Uh, I know you are. (laughs) By by nature. I, I believe that when you appeal to the better nature of individuals, that they will rise to the occasion. So I am optimistic that 426 will get passed. I just hope the General Assembly, and I I served in the General Assembly for 22 years, both Mm -hmm. in the Senate and the House, and I loved my service in the General Assembly. I wished I could change some votes that I cast (laughs) back then uh, over those uh, 22 years. Mm -hmm. But I believe that the General Assembly will rise uh, to its better nature and solve and make a statement and solve an issue that I hope 426 is just the beginning of further discussion on how we implement what we were promised in the Declaration of Independence, that is, that all men and women are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And certainly that includes the right to live without prejudice, without hatred, uh, and without a stereotype. Hmm. Former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes, thank you so much for taking the time. Good to see you again via Zoom. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. You be safe, too. Thank you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. After yesterday's announcement from Fulton County District Attorney Paul Howard, obviously he talked about the charges in the Rayshard Brooks shooting death. But afterwards, there were reports, or rather rumors, that began to circulate that APD officers were refusing to come to work or answer calls. Now, later in the day, there was a statement from the Public Affairs Unit that said, quote, Earlier suggestions that multiple officers from each zone had walked off the job were inaccurate. However, the department is experiencing a higher than usual number of call-outs with the incoming shift. We have enough resources to maintain operations and remain able to respond to incidents throughout the city, close quote. Now, you may have heard of the blue wall. It's a code of sorts, and it means officers don't tell on each other, and they support one another. Was this the case yesterday for some officers? Who knows? But we're going to take the time now to speak to someone who's been in law enforcement for about 25 years. Marvin Reddick. He's worked in just about every law enforcement agency, police, jails, prison, military police, campus police, and was the training coordinator for Atlanta's Ambassador Force. Marvin Reddick, welcome to the program. Good to talk to you again. 
No, good to be here, Rose. Good to talk to you. That blue wall that I mentioned, Marvin, can you recall the first time you heard about that as an officer? Well, I understand the concept of what it meant. And it means a lot of things, different things to uh, different people. Mm -hmm. The uh, core of it, the crooks of it is just a support system for officers, you know, amongst each other. Mm -hmm. uh, because we uh, tend to be uh, sort of out on an island a little bit with, with regards to things. Now, obviously, you're going to also have some corruption, some corrupt elements in there as well. Whereas you have people are covering things that they shouldn't, and that, and we have to take the good with the bad. That's a part of the blue wall as well. But but essentially, it's just a support system that uh, between officers. What do you make of yesterday's unusual number of officers who called in sick? I think it's called they call it the blue flu. Could that have been in solidarity for the two officers, and especially Officer Rolf, who? Uh, obviously had the heavier charge of felony murder. Could that have been the case, you think, through your lens? Well, through my lens, I would say that it's going to be a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. the, uh, most of the officers, especially with the city of Atlanta, have been doing uh, 12 hours, and that's 12 hours, you know, on paper. That, that, that becomes about 14 to 16 very easily, and that's been going on for, you know, almost a month now. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be a part of it. Uh, they're going to be officers that are going to show solidarity um, with the charged officers, and that's a part of it. But for the most part, I think the opinions of officers regarding what's going on with uh, social injustice to African Americans, I, I think that would prevent anything whereas you would see just a, a hard line of officers walking out in solidarity. And when you're looking at a case like this, there, I mean, there's a lot there, obviously. So, and and I'm going to say that most officers, 99% of officers, are for what's right. And uh, and if you're wrong, you're wrong regardless of you know, whether you're wearing blue or whether you're civilian. Marvin, I want to go back to your training days. Can you recall your first day as a police recruiter in the academy and? What was their message to you all about being there and, and making sure this is where you wanted to be? Well, Rose, you're going to make me tell my age now. Um, <laughs> my, uh, well, my first days were obviously with the military police, and that was a, a lot different. Mm -hmm. It was a, a lot more structured. But in the civilian police, and we're talking about 1989, so it was sort of, to use the Japanese expression, senpai kohai. In other words, we, you were a young guy. And you just sort of stay quiet and, and did what everybody uh, did, what you were told to do. But the basic message, um, I would say that you you've been bestowed with a sacred trust, mm -hmm. and you're expected to uphold that sacred trust, and uh, and that was that was pretty much it. And, it. and the learning process just started from there. And throughout all of your years in law enforcement. Can you recall the first time you had to draw your weapon, and what was that situation? Um, that actually came very early for me, okay? And this was in my first two years on the fourth. But I, I, I will predicate by saying most officers uh, today don't have to deploy their weapons during the course of a, of a career. And I say deploy, I mean actually fire. Mm -hmm. The days are not 
drawing your weapon for a long period of time, those days are over. So for me, it was um, it was very reactionary, and a lot of the thought processes came afterwards. What do you so, mean? Um, um, you you read and you react when you're trained. Uh, you have to prepare yourself to be in a situation where there is no time to think. Okay, so everything is is recognition, and everything goes back to training in an instant. So it's very important that you're you're trained properly. It's very important that you stay prepared, um, and, and that's what you run into in you know some force situations on the street. It's it's really boom boom. Did you feel you were prepared? Did you feel your training had prepared you for whatever that incident was when you drew your weapon? Well, I, I'll say this, you know, I, I'd had a number of years in, in the United States military and military police, and I'm going to tell you that's what prepared me. Uh, I'll go ahead and mention it's a small uh, sheriff's office in, uh, in Mississippi that I was with. And, and no, I don't feel like I was prepared based on how or the training that I received there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I had to draw from, you know, different sources to, you know, sort of survive the situation. Marvin, you viewed the footage involving the officers and Rayshard Brooks? I, I have ad nauseum with everything that was available. I, I looked at it. Through your lens, Marvin, and you are an expert, obviously with your expertise in law enforcement, through your lens, is there a moment when one of the officers or both could have made a different decision before we get to the shooting? Uh, before we get to you shooting, uh, unequivocally, yes. Uh, there's a lot of discretion in police work. Uh, say, for instance, and I, and I hope I'm uh, saying this correctly as far as how the protocol goes, um, the first, the initial officer was the patrol officer, you know, as I see it. Mm-hmm. And with, in a metropolitan area, you sort of, it, a DUI takes a long time, okay, if, if that's the case. That could take a whole shift. A DUI could take eight hours easier, even more, uh, to get done from start to finish. So what Atlanta has done, what I think they are doing, is they have a DUI unit. Mm-hmm. And that's who was called. That's what brought the second officer there. Now, the first officer, uh, what I have done, I, I'm not going to tell him, I'm going to say what he should have done. But what I have done in a situation like that is to have that person, since I did not see him drive, have him to park his car have somebody to come get him and I give him a stern warning and if you head towards a, a, a city city right away then I'm going to pull you over and we're going to do the DUI dance if you will uh, now that's just a discretion there and so even with the second officer coming uh, administering a field sobriety I'm, I'm not a proponent of field sobriety because um, it's so subjective you know, if you my age or or a lot younger, you start to lose that coordination you had as a young athlete, young cheerleader, whatever you were. Mm-hmm. And anybody could fail a field sobriety with regards to walk and turn and, and things of, no nature, of that nature. And even the uh, breathalyzer itself is not anything that's admissible to court. So it's always been my uh, training to, you know, state requires a test mm-hmm. of your blood uh and or breath for the presence of pro substance. Uh, it's always been my experience to just go ahead and do that if you're going to do anything. That that answers all questions. So there were a lot of decisions prior to 
the actual shooting where there was discretion. So that's not to say that the officers did anything wrong up to that point, mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't see anything necessarily that was done wrong, especially with the first officer. He did about what I would have done in that situation. Now, the second officer, uh, just the field sobriety itself, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have went that route if I was inclined to, uh, to determine whether this person was, was actually impaired. I would have went the, uh, went the route of just explaining to the gentleman that, Hey, I'm going, we're going to need to go to the hospital to, and there's actually an implied consent card because there is a verbatim, uh, implied consent spiel that all officers get. And usually in my opinion, should read verbatim to let a person know, you know, what is going on. The average person doesn't know that by signing the back of their driver's license, they have, uh, agree to comply to this test mm -hmm. the average person doesn't know that and uh it's one of the things that i i would have done the moment rashard brooks grabs a taser wrestles it away from one of the officers and takes off running and again as you said you can only talk about what you would have done marvin would you have drawn your weapon no absolutely not the um the nature of a taser is that it is less than lethal force. That's what allows police officers to use it at their discretion. You know, I mean, the officer, from the moment of noncompliance, the officer uh, had the option of using the taser, using a pepper spray or whatever type of chemical agent he had. And, and with, with having a broad discretion like that, that lets you know that it's less than lethal. So if the, the determination with uh, drawing your weapon is going to be based on the person having something or having the ability to do something to you or others that would cause egregious bodily harm or death. And a taser by its nature uh, just could not do that. And so in that particular scenario, no, I would not have drawn my weapon. And I'm not sure that I would have chased the person. Because one thing that one thing that happens when you're pulled over uh, by the police before we get out of the car, we already know whether who your vehicle is registered to, whether the registration is good, whether there's insurance on it. And then once we have your driver's license, we know whether you're wanted. Uh, we know where you live and we have a lot of information on you. So if you take off running, I know where to come get you. Mm. So. At this point, we don't have a, a clear uh, prima facie felony here. So we just have a person who we believe that's inebriated that took off running. And, and in police work, that's not that uncommon. You know? So Let, no, I would not have drawn a weapon. I probably wouldn't have chased the guy. Let's talk about police work because everyone talks about police reform. That is at the height of with all these protests, police reform from the community, from leaders. That's not an easy conclusion to come to in terms of what police reform should look like as it relates to an officer's and use of force. And this is something that you have been, from what I understand, you've been writing about and collecting data and information on. And, and when we talk about, Marvin, police reform as it relates to something like excessive use of force, where do you begin? Is it with training? Is it with policy? Both? Something else? Well, I wouldn't say both. I would say all, because this is a societal problem. Uh, 
and, and what I would say to anyone that was interested in um, solving or correcting problems within, let's say, our law enforcement agency, I would say them to look first right where they are because the same uh, discrimination or the same thing problems that you would run into with social justice on your job, whether it's being discriminated against, uh, in hiring and promotion, that's the same uh, discernment just in another work genre, uh, whereas an officer would have the tendency to think that it's okay to put his knee on a person's neck that's already restrained for nine minutes. So I would say uh, just to look where you are first, because when we to correct things as a whole in society, then that leaves less room for any sector of society like law enforcement to be any different from, from the general consensus. So the way uh, people are treated with regards to social injustice, African-American uh, country, it's the same in the workplace. It's the same in uh, education. It's the same everywhere. It's just the genre of police there's the ability to use a lethal force, but it's the same mindset. So the first thing I would say is just to be mindful that we need to correct the problem as a whole. Mm -hmm. But within police work, it's, it's going to take revamping. Now, people are saying that they want to decommission the police. Well, in a, in a sense, I, I agree with them. We need to de decommission the way that we're doing things. You mean de in, in terms of defunding? Defunding, yeah. yeah. Defunding was the term that was used. We need to defund the way that we're doing things. We obviously aren't in a in a position in today's society where we don't need protection uh, from criminal elements, but we do need to change the way that we're doing things. And uh, everything from the training to just just to give you a tidbit, a huge huge step would be um, your psychological services. Mm -hmm. for police officers. That needs to change. Uh, stands right now, there is no in-service psychological treatment for police officers, okay? There is just the psychological uh, aspects of the department that protect the department from liability. So you only see a psychologist when you're in trouble. See, that needs to change and become in and become more of a treatment thing for police. And the... Um, the in-service training has to change. I use Georgia, for instance, requires 40 hours a year of uh, in-service training. Mm -hmm. But the things that you do the most, the most critical things are going to be your ability to use force and your judgment, you know, around that. That needs to that needs to change uh, very much to, to become more in-service. Um, when you're dealing with situation, and this would be more of a legislative thing, and this is just my opinion and some of the things that uh, I'm trying to prepare in, in uh, training, uh, the no accessory rule. Due to the fact that you're a sworn officer and you held a higher standard, I don't think, I don't believe that if there are four officers on the scene, uh, all officers have the same duty, have the same requirement to assist and uphold the law. So if the person that actually commits the act gets, uh, let's say, capital punishment, then everybody else there should. So there shouldn't be an accessory rule with regards to police officers. And that automatically changes things. 
So now, so in other words, about, an officer who may see a fellow officer doing something wrong, they know right. the accountability there. They may step in and say, whoa. <laughs> They're going to step in yeah. because, you know, I'm not going to allow you to cause me to lose my freedom and to lose my job. So, hey, buddy, you need to stop what you're doing. Uh, in other words, take your knee off of this neck. Okay. And when you take away the accessory, because in a lot of cases, uh, officers that are there aren't at all uh, with regards to criminal charges and or uh, departmental discipline, but they're there and they're witnessing these things. So, so they're quote unquote accessories to use uh, general terminology. You take the accessory rule and, and make it a situation where every officer there is equally as responsible. Things have changed real quick. Hmm. Marvin Reddick is a veteran law enforcement officer for 25 years, sharing his insight. Marvin, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Rose, it's always good to talk to you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of the day's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.